Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Afternoon, Jim. Good to be back again for the latest edition of The Other Hand. Lots to talk about, but in an unusual context this week, because I'm going to focus very much on the international background. I know you've got one or two domestic Irish things that you would like to mention, but there's a lot going on internationally that if we don't actually get a chance to dive into, I would like to mention. Because one of the things I've always said on this podcast, I've always said it full stop, actually, is that often we don't fully appreciate how everything is joined to everything else, often in not terribly intuitively obvious ways. So I want to talk about a couple of things that have struck me will build later on to a much bigger, maybe conclusion, but certainly a theme or a hint of an idea. So it's going to start with the London property market, which is actually in trouble. And there's lots of reasons why the London market It's not catastrophic, but it is very soft, even relative to the rest of the UK. And the London property market should interest everybody because it tends to affect lots of things, and sometimes in not terribly obvious ways. But there's a headline in today's news which says that London's most expensive home is for sale. Now, this is a house that was originally sold just before COVID for £210 million. I don't know how many euros that is, Jim, but I'm sure you'll be able to tell me. This was sold by the previous owner, the Saudi Crown Print. Now, at the time, it was purportedly sold to somebody called Cheong Chong Kyu, who also owns a company called CC Land, which also owns London's cheese 
greater skyscraper, one of the big buildings in the city of London. We've subsequently learned, apparently, that in fact, somebody called Hui Ka Yan, who is the founder and chair of a very big mainland Chinese property company, is really the owner of this house, and he's put it up for sale. Because the company that he's the owner and chairman of is called Evergrande, which you may have heard of. It's a Chinese property company that is in an awful lot of trouble because the Chinese property market is in a lot of trouble. And the owner of this Chinese property market, this property developer, is apparently having to sell his own personal assets. Now, of course, this is you can begin to see the story I'm telling here about lots of things connected to lots of other things, which is foreign money coming into London, the UK property market. The UK property market is affected by lots of things, not just foreign money coming in. It's also affected by Liz Truss and what she's up to with her Chancellor of the Exchequer. We've got already higher mortgage rates in the UK because of all of this. And I think that's going to be a major, major issue for the UK property market. But there's lots of reasons why I think one could be bearish of the UK property market, interest rates, the economy, and foreigners pulling out. And one of the problems that the UK faces, of course, I'm not suggesting for a second that any of the gentlemen that I've mentioned are at all dodgy. God forbid that I would even hint at that. But the company that was originally involved in this was a British Virgin Islands company that bought the house from a Curacao registered property company. So it's all very iffy foreign money flowing in and out of London. We know that London has been called London Grad. I wonder whether Vladimir Putin would actually think about declaring his bit of London as part of Russia these days. I mean, that, that would make it probably more sense than the bits of Ukraine that he's declared as part of Russia. So there's lots of things going on in London. There's lots of things going on in the property market. And I think they're all connected. And I think eventually some of these consequences will wash up indeed on Ireland's shores. I think they'll wash up on all of our shores. Can I ask you, Chris, how do you mean wash up on Ireland's shores? I do think the global property market has global drivers. And I think that in funny kind of ways, you know, if the UK property market was to crash over the next 18 months, Jim, do you think the Irish property market would be completely immune from that? No. Okay, that's what I mean. And sometimes these effects are less than obvious when we spot them, when we're thinking about them, trying to spot them in advance. Obviously, the drivers of the Irish property market are mostly domestic. One of the things that drives demand for any asset is confidence, is human psychology. And if we saw the world's property market collapsing around us, even though the Irish economy was still doing fine, maybe Irish interest rates hadn't gone up and everybody's incomes were still fine. I still think that the confidence element in the property market would would have a consequence everywhere. Of course, the, the fact is that it's not as simple as that, that if the UK property market is crashing, it probably is going to take the UK economy with it and the Irish economy will not be immune to that. So there will be economic blowback effects via trade. So everything, as I say, is affected by everything else. It's never just one line of causation or or correlation. Exhibit number two, prosecution evidence number two, is an interview that Larry Summers gave with Martin Wolf this week in the FT. And he's described what's been going on in the UK, this Liz Trust quasi-quateng thing that has made all the headlines, that has really preoccupied a lot of financial markets, nearly blew up British financial markets last week, as the perfect storm. And his words actually were, were, were very, very pointed and, and very good, very in my opinion anyway. He described misguided fiscal policy coupled with lack of central bank credibility. 
he's talking about the Bank of England there, lack of central bank credibility, coupled with toxic leverage, that's the old pension fund thing that we talked about last time, created positive feedback loops that led to disaster. It's quite a description. And he made a point about financial crises, which is where I'm getting to with all of this, which is that frequently the case that financial is frequently the case that financial crises have more to do with assets that were previously perceived as completely safe, be, suddenly becoming risky, more than risky assets suddenly becoming riskier um, than previously expected. So what he's saying is a financial crisis normally come out of nowhere. And he, he, really, really hard hitting final comment of his, the destabilization wrought by British errors will not be confined to the British. So in a way, he's making my point for me that sometimes things lead to other things else. Everything is connected to everything else. So that all raises a question for me. There's lots of things going on there, Jim. And one of the things that uh, is prompted by this and other factors is that we, of course, look back to the financial crisis and that awful word contagion. Contagion is a one-word description of what I'm talking about, things affecting everything else. Do you think that financial market participants are right to be looking for the next Lehman moment? I probably do, Chris, yeah, absolutely. Um, as you describe it, uh, or as Larry Summers described it, a perfect storm. If you look at what, what's happening globally and what has been happening for the last 10 or 12 years, we've been living through very artificial uh, monetary policy conditions. You know, we've seen massive quantitative easing. We've seen historically low short and long-term interest rates for much of that period. And of course, that was all exacerbated by the COVID crisis. And, and you, you might look back in hindsight and say that some of that monetary policy response, particularly the ramping up of quantitative easing, was overdone. But it's easy to say that in hindsight, if you're facing into an environment where the global economy or large swathes of it are being shut down due to COVID restrictions, you know, God only knows what where that might lead. So I, I wouldn't be blaming central bankers um, in hindsight for making that mistake. But certainly the monetary policy environment and low interest rates have created very artificial situations around the world. Uh, they have certainly elevated asset prices, property, equities, particularly to levels that do look um, quite unsustainable in many cases in the event of any sort of shock. Also, there is a sense that perhaps the financial institutions, CSFB being an example, um, you know, engaged in very risky activities again and took on too much leverage. So uh, I, I think there's a lot to be worried about at the moment, having come through that sort of very artificial policy environment. And if you now look at that sort of perfect storm that's happening, long-term interest rates are rising. Okay, they're choppy from week to week and from day to day, but relative to where they were a year ago, um, there has been a pretty dramatic increase. And you have always stressed the linkage between bond yields and the housing market, for example, and also indeed the performance of equity markets. Um, central banks are tightening interest rates aggressively. And I know central banks have been, in, to my knowledge, over the last couple of weeks, maybe I'm just being too preoccupied with other stuff, but I haven't too many heard too many central bankers coming out saying very much. So the last statements that I'm aware of that they've made were certainly suggesting that interest rates will go a lot higher. Um, you look at the ongoing situation with Ukraine um, and uh, an incredibly difficult, worrying 
frightening sort of global geopolitical backdrop out there. Uh, the relationship between Russia and China, between Russia and India, between China and everybody else. There's an awful lot of stuff there to be really worried about from a geopolitical perspective. So if you superimpose all of that into the picture, throw it all into the picture, into the mix, certainly it does look a little bit like the perfect storm that Larry Summers spoke about. And certainly I think financial markets are very right to be wary of the next Lehman moment. Yeah, they have been mentioning Credit Suisse. You're showing your age there when you call it CSFB, mate, I tell you. <laughs> Credit Suisse is the the entity, the bank, the European bank that is being mentioned dispatches a lot this week. And certainly banking analysts that I follow say that, yes, Credit Suisse is not in fantastic shape, but it is in nowhere near a Lehman Brothers position for all sorts of reasons, not least the fact that banks are much better regulated than they were, and they do have much better buffers if they do run into trouble for whatever reason. I don't know. I'm not a banking analyst, but uh, those sorts of thoughts uh, resonate with me. They do look to be a wee bit stronger than Lehman was at at a similar point. And I also take Larry Summers' point is that this comes out of nowhere. This comes out of somewhere where we don't expect and everybody looking at Credit Suisse probably means they're looking at the wrong thing. So, Chris, but, you, yeah, sorry, you, you asked me, did I think the markets were correct to be looking for the next Lehman's? Do you think they are? Well, this gets a bit circular for me because I think the mere fact that everything I read these days and every conversation I listen to is precisely about that question in financial markets. Is, is there a Lehman moment coming? Where is the next crisis? It's almost taken as a given that there is a crisis coming for all the reasons that you just very eloquently gave there, Jim. It's it's a really worrying background. The higher central bank interest rate thing in and of itself, without all that geopolitical and other energy price type stuff that, that you also talk about, is enough. Because one of the things that we know is that there's an awful lot of leverage in the system. By leverage, that's a word, financial piece of jargon that means an awful lot of borrowing. People have borrowed money to buy stuff. We saw that with the pension fund thing last week. We discovered to our horror that boring old pension funds were behaving like hedge funds and borrowing money to do all sorts of hedge fundy things with assets that they had no business playing in. And we just wonder where that next example is going to come from, because that's how the great financial crisis of 12 years ago or so came about. People borrowing far too much money to buy boring old houses and instruments related to houses, all those fancy derivatives. So, yeah, um, one of the things we worry about is that these higher interest rates are coming at a time where we don't actually know where all this leverage is. We didn't suspect it was in the pension fund system um, and we suspect that it exists somewhere. But critically, it exists outside the banks. That's where it's the non-bank sector that I think the regulators are really starting to worry about. Uh, The banks themselves, of course, are much better regulated because of the financial crisis, so are probably in reasonable shape, not perfect shape, to withstand whatever's coming next. But I think, yeah, yeah, there could well be a problem. One of the ways in which it could happen is that the real economy reacts much quicker now than previously thought to the rises in interest rates. Partly working its way through that leverage point that I was making is that there is so much borrowing in the system that people come back on their spending at at critical parts of the economy. Um, And we actually get a much bigger slowdown than people are expecting. We got, and I know you've looked at these, Jim, non-farm payrolls today, which are a backward-looking indicator of the US economy. 
And I think you're about to tell me that they didn't indicate much of a slowdown there. An increase of 263,000 in non-farm payrolls, um, a little bit stronger than was expected. Um, an unemployment rate of 3.5%. That is certainly suggestive of a labour market that's still very hot. And it is also um, not indicative of an economy that's about to go down the toilet anytime soon. So that's the piece of good news on the economic front we have seen today. And guess what? Equity markets have reacted very negatively, just as you were explaining earlier in the week that equity markets were doing very well on the back of bad news. So uh, the, the linkage here between good and bad news and equity market performance has got to do with perceptions, I think, about inflation and interest rates. So signs that economic slowdown is happening lead the markets to conclude that interest rates are not going to go up by as much as they previously believed and equity markets rebound on that basis. And uh, conversely, when we get a reasonably strong number, the markets start to think again about the possibility of um, more uh, higher interest rates than previously believed. The dollar has strengthened again today against the euro. I think it's down about 97.70 at the moment. Equity markets are having a bad day. It's an incredibly, incredibly choppy market scenario out there. I mean, the, the sorts of volatility we're getting indeed in equity markets, in bond markets, and also in currency markets is quite extraordinary at the moment. Uh, back in a previous life, we worked together, Chris, in a dealing room where there was a lot of currency traders. There was a lot of volatility. Uh, it was a great time to be a foreign currency trader. But we've come through a number of years where the volatility in foreign exchange markets has certainly lessened dramatically, um, not least because uh, there are fewer currencies around with the creation of the euro, of course. But um, it's been a challenging enough environment, I would say, for currency traders, given the lack of volatility. But by God, over the last few months, we have seen some volatility from day to day because currency traders, as you know, they make their money or lose their money on you know, short term fluctuations in currency prices. So it's, 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 it's an incredibly volatile, choppy environment out there. And I don't think markets actually have a clue at the moment where they envisage equity markets being even by the end of the year, not to mention 12 months down the road. Uh, markets are just being entirely driven, as I see it, by news flow at the moment. Over the last number of years, uh, the, certainly equity markets were pushed higher by all of this excess liquidity that was being pumped into the system by central banks. Central banks are now rowing back on that and we've seen some quantitative tightening, but even central banks are not sure at the moment as to whether they should proceed with quantitative tight tightening from here or not. So a huge amount of uncertainty, huge amount of volatility. And, and from an investment perspective, uh, you'd be kind of scratching your head at the moment. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss plushcare.com slash weight loss a lot can happen in three years like a chatbot maybe your new best friend 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Well, it wouldn't be just us with our pitiful pension pots thinking of investment dilemmas. The central banks, um, and I think this is one of Larry Summers' point, will be looking at what happened to the Bank of England over the last few days with horror and thinking, oh my God, is this about to happen to us? Because what you've got is that you've got one arm of the Bank of England deciding that you've got to fight inflation and you've got to start withdrawing some of this money that you've printed over the last few years for in the wake of the great financial crisis and, of course, the pandemic. So you've got to raise interest rates and suck money out of the system. The system, because of something that happens over there that you didn't anticipate, that you had nothing to do with, although your rises in interest rates may have had a little bit to do with it, um, for, for whatever reason, the system blows up. And as the lender of last resort, which is at the end of the day, the central bank's key function, guaranteeing financial stability is incredibly important. It's an important part of any central bank's mandate. And that in order to maintain the stability of the system, in order to stop the system from just blowing up, you then have to do exactly the opposite of what you said you were going to do only a few days ago. And that is, to, in particular, to print money. Instead of draining money from the system, you print money, which is what the Bank of England has got to do. So I think both the ECB and the Fed will be looking at this example and thinking, oh my God, is this the, the corner that we are backing ourselves into for the next while? Because what they will be very concerned about is that raising interest rates will provoke some kind of blow up in some unimagined corner of the financial system. As I said, it's a non-bank thing that I am worried about. Or maybe just produce that big economic slowdown, which I know that you've just told me isn't happening in the United States. But I have a fancy that it could come very quickly and very suddenly. Yeah. We're used to have these things happening quite gradually. Labour markets are backward looking. I just fancy that the real economy could take a sudden downturn as a result of all of this uncertainty, all of this talk of central bank rises, interest rate rises, all of this financial instability, all of this talk about where is the next crisis coming from. People like us having this conversation, where is the next Lehman moment? In the unlikely event that people are listening to us having this conversation, I do know that lots of people are asking that question in very public fora saying, where is the next Lehman moment coming from? If you were anybody listening to that, a business person thinking of investing, somebody thinking of buying a house, buying a car, would you rush out to be spending now? At the margin, do you think this will reduce spending? I think it will, and it could be more than at the margin. It could reduce a lot of spending very quickly. I think people could retrench here as much for psychological as for proper reasons. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm getting quite cautious about the economic outlook. Jim, I've got another question for you. I'm not going to put you on the spot with regard to your economic outlook. But before we come to um, the one or two bits of Irish news that I know that you want to discuss, one of the things that's almost gone under the radar has been the most humongous announcement of a fiscal expansion in Germany. I don't know whether you caught any sight of it. 200 billion euros is yes. what they've announced. Yes. And what was really interesting to me was that some other countries in Europe jumped up and down and said, it's not fair. It really, it's it's awful of you, Mr. German, to be doing this. Um, what did you make of it all? Yeah, it's interesting. Uh, yesterday and today, there's a meeting of European leaders in Prague. 
Um, it's 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 not one of the normal scheduled meetings. It's it's one that um, President Macron of France, who is now trying to become the de facto leader of Europe, or, organized as such to discuss uh, current events. Apparently, there's a lot of countries around the table very pissed off with Germany over its fiscal expansion and over particularly its attitude towards energy. Why? Exactly why? Because we, we would have said for years under Angela Merkel's leadership that Germany was way too conservative from a fiscal perspective and that Germany had a role to play in supporting the Eurozone economy. And it didn't because they passed those laws banning budget deficits, etc., etc. So we were critical of Germany for that. And now Germany is taking the lead, and I think correctly so, because that sort of fiscal expansion is required, and yet we get this sort of reaction. It's very strange, but it does, I think, pose a fundamental question about the European Union and the future stability of the European Union. I think we have always believed, back in the days when we worked together in the lead-up to the creation of the single European currency, I think neither of us was exactly a fan of that because while it made a lot of political sense, it didn't make a lot of economic sense. But we have sort of created a single currency, a single interest rate, but we haven't put a single fiscal policy in place. And most importantly, we haven't put any semblance of a single political entity in place. So Europe, the EU, is a mishmash of some good, some bad. But when you see that sort of reaction to Germany taking fiscal leadership uh, to address a crisis situation for the euro area, uh, it's quite bizarre to see that sort of response. That there's no doubt about that. I remember when I many many years ago was involved in financing. I wasn't doing the building myself. I was just providing the money, a house extension, and one of my neighbours threatened me with legal action for mysterious reasons that I to this day don't understand. And I remember asking my solicitor why. When I'm building this nice piece of thing, why are they being sitting? They just said it's because they can, and it's because you're spending money, and and they're not. It's pure envy. It's pure jealousy. I've got a cabinet full, filing cabinet full of similar cases. It just happens all the time. So I wonder whether these countries are jealous of Germany's ability to spend the money. But more seriously, I wonder whether there is a point lurking somewhere in their complaints about suspension of the state aid rules. Is Germany in this 200 billion? fiscal package designed to cope with the energy crisis, bugging some monies, uh, money at German companies unfairly, because the state aid rules were su- suspended during the pandemic. And I don't think they've made much of a comeback. Certainly, no. the- I mean, Ger- Germany was really adept at pumping money into Lufthansa during mm. the COVID crisis, for example. Yeah. So I suspect that's partly to do with the belly aching, but I think just plain old fashioned envy is also at work. All right, Jim, I've got another. So this is turning into a Chris asking Jim question session, which is perhaps an interesting way of constructing some of these. At the end of the week, I'm not sure, but keep going. I'm going to ask you about Saudi Arabia and Joe Biden. Joe Biden has gone to Saudi Arabia, fist bumped MBS, the murderer of that journalist in Turkey, uh, all in an effort to get Saudi Arabia not to cut or not to support an OPEC. Output reduction. Output reduction. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Saudi Arabia, in it, and I'm not here to defend anybody, but Saudi Arabia has for years said that it wants a $100 oil price. So consistent with that, it has joined with Vladimir Putin, cut OPEC's quota by 2 million barrels a day. 
It's not really that because a lot of the members of OPEC aren't producing at their quota anyway, so it won't have as big an effect as perhaps people think. But it's entirely consistent with what Saudi Arabia has always said it wanted and entirely inconsistent with what Joe Biden has asked them for. And you talked about geopolitical risk in markets in the global economy. Surely this is a big one now that Saudi Arabia, according to the headlines, according to the Republican Party, and indeed some Democrats, Washington is crying foul and asking about fundamental questions about the relationship with the United States and Saudi Arabia, saying things like we shouldn't be selling them arms anymore. Some Congress people are saying we should pull our troops out of Saudi Arabia Um, And there's some spillover as well to the United Arab Emirates, who are apparently also part of this. What What do you make of all of this? What do you think? In the current environment, the global issues with energy, supply, price, etc., it struck me as very strange as to why OPEC would be cutting back production. Um, That $100 a barrel target that the Saudis have always wanted, uh, fine in normal times, but these are not normal times. The global economy is in a serious problem. Um, The West and Europe particularly are being really badly impacted by the Russian situation. And uh, the Saudis doing this, pushing this agenda, it is really just playing into Russian hands. And if you look around the world at the moment, at the the whole geopolitical relationship piece, um, it is really dividing down the middle between those who are with Russia and those who are against. And on the on the against Russia side, we have Europe, we have the United States, uh, well, most of Europe, Orban, um, who got a very frosty reception today, but you know, Orban is pretty much on the Russian side of the fence. But on the other Russian side of the fence, you have, um, well, sorry, Japan, I should have mentioned, is, is a big player on the Western side as well. But then you have China, North, North Korea, China, India, um, I'm not sure where Pakistan lies at this stage. The Pakistani response has been not what I would have expected. I would have thought there'd be much more overt support for Russia than we've actually seen. But, uh, you know, that aside, the world really is splitting down the middle at the moment. You're either for or against Russia. We see two of our illustrious MEPs voting against a resolution in the European Parliament to sanction or to... to um, have a go with Russia, basically, which the whole thing is really, really scary at the moment. There is no doubt about that. Okay, I'll say two things in response to that. Firstly, I'm not going to uh, allow a single podcast uh, from the other hand to go out without at least one negative thing about Sinn Féin going out. And I would say I would draw attention to the fact that the Sinn Féin website has been scraped of all positive references that they have made over the years to both Russia and Putin. This is a party that for many years has made speeches and said things that could be easily construed as supportive of things Russian and things Putin. And all of those references have magically disappeared. Chris, when did you get a chance to look through? Ah, see, now you, 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 I could not possibly, I'm a good journalist, I could not possibly reveal my sources. <laughs> right, now that, that's my anti-Champagne thing. Interesting, yeah, okay. interesting. And enough of the shinners for, for one podcast anyway. But I, I am going to finish and I'm going to let you have your say on what the um, latest news out of Ireland is. But I want to conclude this bit of all of these awful uh, global things uh, on an optimistic note. Last year, um, China did something that was really, really interesting. We all know that when people talk about China, they, as I just did, talked about its property slowdown, the economy being in deep trouble. Um, and they also we also talk about the environmental crisis and China's impact on that. 
and there all sorts of statistics like five coal-fired power stations a day being bought um, being installed in China and all kinds of horrible stuff happening. That's an exaggeration, by the way, just to make a point. But did you know that last year China installed more wind energy than had been established in the entire world in any previous year? Uh, they are going for it in terms of alternative energy in the most remarkable way. And one of the things that's happening in the States is that they've noticed this. And they've noticed that in two key areas, at least, there are probably others, China is stealing not just an actual lead in terms of production of all of this stuff, but in terms of technology, in terms of know-how, in terms of just the ability to get stuff done. In the area of alternatives, China is stealing a lead so that, for example, at the beginning of this year, the wind industry wrote to Ursula von der Leyen complaining about Chinese competition and that saying we can't produce this stuff, this kit, and um, as cheaply as the Chinese. We need to do something about it. The Americans have noticed that this is happening, that China, in a way, through learning by doing, by building all these wind farms and solar farms, is, is stealing a march on the West. And it, it really now is going for it. The US, for example, has very little offshore wind at the moment. But over the next few years, it's going to install humongous amounts of it if their plans come to fruition. And it's got an awful lot to do with Joe Biden's very misnamed Inflation Reduction Act, which really was all about the environment. Quite an extraordinary piece of legislation. We don't really appreciate just how extraordinary it is. I refer listeners to an article in this month's Atlantic magazine about this very issue which is all about an article written by a Credit Suisse analyst, actually. Everything is connected to everything else. Remember I said that. But the other area in which the Americans are getting really antsy, of course, is in the area of silicon chips, and they're bringing all the technology for production onshore. Bring it, and there was something announced there today. The one good thing that comes out of all of this is that with China and America now spending like bilio on the energy transition, I do think that there are amazing things about to happen in the production of alternative energy. They already have happened, but I think it's really going to go exponential and the climate economy is going to go nuts in a very, very positive way. And the IMF this week said as much again. There I'll shut up. I'll say that's a positive thing, a silver lining in a very cloudy landscape. You mentioned Biden's Inflation Act. Um, I teach an MBA class in Smurfit Business School in UCD. And I put up the sort of slide this morning that one should never use in a uh, PowerPoint presentation of a very detailed breakdown of that Inflation Act. And it is quite extraordinary what's in there. And it is particularly extraordinary what's in there from a climate perspective. I, I suppose with all of the noise around the Ukraine situation, the volatility on markets, all of the nervousness around there, that that act actually passed under the radar, but it is very, very significant. And if delivered, it certainly would represent, I think, a major victory for uh, President Biden. Just a couple of things before we wrap, Chris. I notice, you know, you were talking about the London property market and the impact that a significant correction in the UK could have on the Irish market. Um, I noticed a headline in the papers today based on the ESRI's latest quarterly economic commentary, where the ESRI is suggesting that Irish house prices are overvalued by 7%. Am I, supposed um, to, am I supposed to say something profound at this point or am I just allowed to laugh? <laughs> profane or profound? Either, both. You tell me. Uh, no, I, I, I just think it's kind of bizarre how you could possibly model a housing market as being 7% overvalued. 
I do notice that in my home.ie, for example, which is a house sales portal, uh, that there has been a number of properties that have had their prices marked down from the original asking price over the last couple of weeks. That's perhaps suggestive of vendors looking for ridiculous prices, unrealistic prices, or perhaps it is a realization that actually the world is changing. Interest rates are rising. The global economic outlook is not great. Obviously, that will have an impact on the Irish um, economic performance. And so the housing market is starting to lose momentum. Uh, But 7% overvalued, hmm. We'll see. The final point I would make is on the Irish labour market and some data we've seen. Uh, The latest unemployment data for September show an unemployment rate of 4.3%, which is virtually full employment in an Irish context. That's 116,900 people, which is down 18,500 on a year ago. And wait for it, during the month of September, there was a decline of 800 in unemployment, despite the fact that we are facing into all of these headwinds. So the labour market here is still incredibly tight. Recruitment, retention is a big issue for business. And I've noticed in my local area here, well, the broader area, I know of four restaurants that have announced closure in the last couple of weeks, citing two things in the main. One is serious problems with recruiting and retaining staff, and secondly, significant increase in the cost of doing business. So, and and I guess what hasn't been mentioned, but I, well, that I've seen, but I think is an issue as well, that definitely consumer conference here in September fell to the lows last seen in March 20, and prior to that in December 2008, um, at the beginning of the great financial crash. So consumers, are justifiably very concerned about the future. They are cutting back on discretionary spending. That is impacting particularly on areas like restaurants. So we could be in for a challenging winter here for SME businesses like restaurants. And um, yet the government is still insistent that next February is going to increase the VAT rate again from 9% to 13.5% for restaurants. Uh, doesn't make sense to me, but um, I, I, I think these businesses should be given as much support as possible. Absolutely. Not strong support like that. Chris, we, we leave it there. Um, do have a great weekend. Thank you, buddy. I, I hope our listeners are okay with their first podcast under ACAST there on Tuesday when a few ads appeared. Uh, I hope it's okay. We've trailed that, and everybody that did get it, that would kindly got in touch with us, said that they, they, they realised that that was just the way of the modern world, and that for us to continue with this podcast requires something like that to happen. So, um, thanks everybody for their patience and understanding. Cheers, mate. Are, are you on your way to your second million, Chris? <laughs> second. What happened to the first? <laughs> Have a splendid weekend. weekend. Bye. Bye. Talk bye. to you. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify, and other good podcast platforms. 
Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast, and I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher, because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait, is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.